Hi, this is Beth AQ, and this is the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. The Glass House is a space for spoken word artists, poets, sound makers, audio storytellers, emerging cultural leaders, thinkers, writers, and anyone who celebrates story as a means of self-expression, self-representation, and community building. I hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website. My name's Eliza. I'm filling in for Beth AQ today. It's been a little while between between shows here on Triple R, so I'm extremely excited to be here with you. It's a new year for me on Triple R, so that's very exciting as well. Um, I want to kick off by acknowledging that I'm broadcasting on the stolen land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and pay my respects to all elders past, present and emerging. Sovereignty was never ceded and this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. And I guess, you know, as we kick into the show today, I've been thinking about how crazy a time it is in the world right now and has been for the last few years. I know we're all feeling it. And one of the small things that I'm sort of trying to do for my own sanity is to find moments of appreciation. And I guess today I'm just really appreciative to be here with you, but also to have some really inspiring people coming on the show and getting to talk to them and share them with you. Um, we're going to have a queer non-binary writer, performer and activist Navo Zizin joining me later in the show. And they're going to be chatting about a teen writing boot camp with it's an own voices style that they're running this month with the State Library of Victoria. And then very shortly, we're going to be hearing from Professor Therese Davis and Dylan Bird about a brand new podcast they've been working on called Seeing Green, which looks at how Australian film can help us imagine new ways of addressing our most urgent environmental challenges, um, which feels quite pressing at the moment with a few urgent environmental challenges bearing down on us. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. So could Australian film help us to imagine new ways of, of addressing our most urgent environmental challenges? That is the question that film and science experts are asking on a new podcast called Seeing Green, which explores how Australian cinema has shaped our relationship to land, water and country. And joining me now to chat about it is executive producer Professor Der Therese Davis and host of the podcast and a familiar voice to many Triple R listeners. You might have just heard his voice on that station announcement just then is Dylan Bird, who is hosting the podcast. Hello to both of you. Can you hear me? Yes. Hello, Eliza. Thanks so much for having us. It's my absolute pleasure. Um, so I guess to kick off the conversation, I was super curious about this podcast the moment I heard about it. I think, you know, um, I'm aware that you touch on some iconic films like Mad Max and Wake and Fright. And my brain kind of explodes thinking about this, these questions of um, looking at cinema through the lens of an environmental context. Like first I go to these like big landscape shots and these striking visuals of what we commonly think of as the outback. And then I think about things like sustainability and waste on set. And then I think about how films can shape attitudes towards the environment. So yeah, the, 
premise of the podcast invites lots of questions and I'm really curious to hear from both of you just how this project came about and, you know, what you set out to do. Um, yeah, well, it's, I mean, th there's so many questions, aren't there, <laughs> once you start thinking about this topic and, and I mean, I, I came on board this podcast as, as host, so I um, host, um, you know, the first episode just dropped today, which is very exciting, but I'm by no means a, a film expert or, you know, an expert on any particular elements of the environment or environmental science or, or anything like that. So, um, so I came on board as, as host of the podcast, which is, is part of a much larger research project that, that Therese um, is one of three people leading, which she can talk about in a moment, I'm sure. But, but for me, just essentially, I'm a, I'm a regular punter speaking to really interesting people um, who have such fascinating insights, both into the, the films themselves, um, but also into a whole range of environmental issues, you know, relating to ecotourism, um, biodiversity conservation, electric vehicles in, in Mad Max, um, and sort of conservation psycho psychology, which is, is such a, a field I was not even familiar with, um, which Chris McCormack in the first episode, Waking Fright, explores. So, I mean, I learned so much from doing it um, and exploring some of those questions that you just touched on. But, but Therese, maybe if you could explain sort of how this podcast fits in with that broader research project you're part of. Yeah, sure, Dylan. Uh, the way I see it is that this the podcast is a bit of an experiment, um, and the experiment were, is um, what would happen if we brought film experts and environmental studies ecologists, uh, scientists together to talk about films. Would this tell us something different about the relationship between film, television and the environment? And we're just loving what Dylan and the wonderful experts that, that we've been able um, to interview are doing because, yeah, it does work. What's happening is that it's bringing some really new viewpoints to these classic films, really opening it up and, like we hoped, allowing us to see green, that we can actually see the worlds that are depicted in these films through this sort of green lens. Um, so we're, we're thrilled um, by the podcast. And um, just to kind of give the bigger picture, this work of bringing um, film studies and uh, scientists together is part of this larger project called Remaking the Australian Environment through Documentary Film and Television. And as Dylan said, there's three of us working on it, uh, me and Belinda Smale at Monash University and Chris Healy at the University of Melbourne. And what we're thinking about is how does film shape environmental consciousness? And as part of that, we're trying to historicize that and think about film as this really rich source for thinking about the development of environmental consciousness over the years from the 1950s and 60s, how have our attitudes to the environment changed from a very much a um, colonialist point of view of the environment as a natural resource through to the environment as wilderness, through to um, uh, the Anthropocene, of course, and the um, climate change and the impact of humans on the environment. 
And of course, this is Australia, so there is also the incredible um, ecological knowledge of Indigenous Australians in their um, <clears throat> through, through through the concept of country and belonging. So that's what we're thinking about: is how there's this rich archive of film and television that that gives us all of this knowledge about this really important. Um, topic which is how we think about our environment. Absolutely it's super interesting to kind of reframe the way that you view some of these films as well like I watched Wake and Fright recently and thinking about it in relation to this podcast and what you might talk about on the episode um, it's you know it's not overtly an environmental film yet it is sit it sits amongst the landscape that is dependent on the environment there's these undercurrents of it being a mining town it's in like impenetrable heat in a place where water is scarce it's you know they have those wild scenes of the kangaroo culling towards the end but none of the film is about the environment um specifically Dylan, I'm really curious to you, you mentioned, you know, you don't necessarily have an ecology background per se or come from the same type of expertise as some of the researchers on the project. So what did you learn with those fresh ears? Can you give some examples of things that you discovered while um, working on the podcast? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the, the first episode, um, all about waking fright, we have uh, Associate Professor Belinda Smale, who, as Therese mentioned, is um, you know one of the, the lead researchers on, on the broader project, but also, along with Therese, one of our executive producers. Um, and she's joined by Chris McCormack, who's doing his, his PhD in conservation psychology, but has a really interesting background in um, zoology and, and marine biology and is the founder of a nature charity called Remember the Wild, which uses story to explores how story can reconnect us with with nature. So a very good fit for, um, you know, the kinds of things we're hoping to do with the podcast. But um, e even talking about the distinction between landscapes as depicted in seminal Australian films, which, which you touched on, Eliza, and the concept of the environment as being something quite different as, as giving rise to life and a particular way of living in a particular place. And that was something that Belinda really reinforces in her reading of Waking Fright in the first episode. And I think that's such a fascinating idea to sort of feed into the whole series as a whole, you know, what kinds of people um, are born out of that the environment sort of represented on film and how does that tie in with our current day connections with place and, and the Australian desert um, and, you know, the enduring impacts of colonialism as well. So I thought that was such an interesting insight, as well as just explaining the history of, of Broken Hill as a filming location, because it's famously where, you know, some of the Mad Max films have been shot um, and it's where the outdoor scenes in, in Wake and Fright are shot, but I wasn't aware of just how important a place it is in the history of Australian film. And Belinda talks about the role of the, the oil industry, the Shell kind of um, company in, in producing Australian films, um, sort of in the, the mid part of uh, the 20th century and, and the role of government in sort of supporting that. So you kind of have this idea in the background of Waking Fright of industry and government funding, particularly sort of documentaries as part of almost a sort of nation building. But then Waking Fright comes in as a complete sort of up upending in a way of a particular kind of Australian culture and a real kind of critique of, of that Australian culture as, as being 
you know, driven by toxic masculinity, by drunkenness, um, and a complete debauchery of the environment as well. So she brought in incredible insights and, and then Chris just talking about even, you know, bringing more insights into the, the kangaroo shooting scene itself. And, you know, this, this idea of, of whether, um, you know, kangaroos should be culled or not, because at the end of the film, which is something that I'd forgotten about, there's a postscript that says that the Australian kangaroo um, is endangered, which sort of runs against a lot of our common perceptions about the kangaroo as, as being in plentiful supply. So, um, I mean, there's a whole lot that came out of just that discussion alone. Yeah, absolutely. I know that um, one of the things that you're seeking to explore is these threats that we face, like climate change and species loss and the enduring impacts of colonialism. So they're just like quite a few little... little big (laughs) few key examples of how the film does it um I guess also thinking about another film that actually Dylan would you like to run through quickly just what films you have touched on so far and which ones you or how you chose the films yeah totally so we've got Wake and Fright which is which is out today so the first episode in the series um we also tackle Mad Max with a focus on Fury Road that the 2015 and latest installments um of, of the Mad Max series. Um, For that one, we had a PhD candidate over at Monash, um, Melanie Ash, who is researching the history of Broken Hill as a filming location. Um, And also Kat Lucas-Healy, who's a sort of specialist in, as she describes it, all energy-related things. um, And that encompasses electric vehicles. So she has some fascinating insights um, to bring to her reading of of Mad Max and, and imagining um, sort of a, an electric fueled Mad Max, what that might look like and, and whether that would, would work with the sort of post-apocalyptic storyline um, underpinning those films. We also look at Rogue, which is almost kind of a Jaws, except substitute the, the shark with a crocodile and put it in Arnhem Land. Um, it's an Australian film that's, um, that was out in the past decade. And we had um, Benjamin Thompson from... Uh, from Monash and also Simon Troon from Monash um, and Ben has a history, a, a sort of research background in biodiversity conservation and ecotourism. So he talks about this sense of, of crocodiles as, uh, you know, really creatures to be feared um, and as pariahs, um, which sort of is very much underpinning the plot of Rogue. Um, and then finally, the film we looked at, and I really loved doing this episode, was Storm Boy um, and the 1976 version of, of that film. And we had Emily O'Gorman from Macquarie University, um, who has a sort of background in environmental history and has written about the Coorong, where Storm Boy is set. Um, and Jess Belanza-Teggy from Swinburne University, who researches children's screen genres and, and sort of children's screen uh, more broadly as well. So lots of fascinating insights came out of that chat too. And so they're all, yeah, all very evocative films. Like when I when I do think of them, I really straight away picture these landscapes and like the scrubby heath along the coastline and like the Mad Max, like the m- motorbikes zooming down a sort of deserted highway. When you're thinking about creating these podcasts from like a storytelling perspective, what kind of decisions did you make about how to bring those places to life and how that would sort of pair with the conversations you were having? 
Yeah, it's, it's a good question because we we sort of um, started out not knowing at all what we were producing, did we, <laughs> Therese? When we first had that meeting um, with um, you know with yourself and Belinda, we just thought you know we'd make a podcast, we'd put it together, but what format should it take? What what should it sound like? You know, how might we um, combine these interviews with other sounds to really immerse the listener in the world, the environment of these films, which you know we thought was a really important thing to do. Um, but credit for, for all of that goes, um, you know, largely to our producer, Britta Jorgensen, who's done an amazing job um, weaving uh, different sort of scenes from the film throughout the discussion. So at various points, you kind of feel like you're there watching it while you hear the various speakers um, give their insights into, you know, how they, they think a particular element of the film reflects on, on environmental concerns and contemporary, you know, environmental issues as well. So um, Briss has done a, a fantastic job with that. Um, and also we've got a really nice um, theme music to go to go with it, which was provided by Ashley Sterling. Um, and I think that just has these kind of bird sounds in the background and and sits really nicely within the, the sort of ethos and, and the environment again that we're trying to create through the, the podcast itself. Beautiful. And oh, sorry, go on, Therese. I was going to say, just back to that idea of it being an experiment, it is a research experiment, is that it it's really contributing to a new type of um, podcast, which we might call the academic research podcast, which sound, that sounds really boring. But um, I think what's happening is that it's a way for um, those of us that work in, in academia um, to experiment with how to communicate our research in really interesting ways rather than just a kind of uh, reporting on what we do. And one of, the, you know, I like to think about this podcast series as kind of live research where we're doing sort of live synthesis of ideas and that the audience is part of that process and participating in sort of making the connections. And yeah, so that so it, what we're also exploring here is a new method of doing research. Mm, absolutely. I mean, I think I, I know that sometimes people can feel like there's so much great research out there and there's so many discussions that ha happen in academia that don't necessarily translate or reach a lot of the broader world. So it's so great to see this investment in kind of new ways of um, disseminating that information and that intelligence and conversation and quest. Um, I'm going to ask you both just sort of one last question. It's probably a big question, so <laughs> see how you go answering it. Love to throw out the the hard hitting ones. Um, but so these a lot of these films were made, um, as you mentioned, Therese, earlier on, sort of in I think the 50s, 60s, uh, like quite a long time ago now approaching this project with sort of some time having passed what like do you think that Australian film can help us to imagine new ways to address these urgent environmental issues Dylan do you want me to go first here yeah you go first <laughs> um I do and I think that one of the themes that's coming through here is the ways in which these these films uh, explicitly or implicitly have to deal with the notion of country and the way in which we must start to think about um, the role that Indigenous Australia has to play in thinking about the environment in Australia, that it, it, it must 
be part of whatever we are kind of doing and thinking our way through this. And it's just amazing how that starts to come out when you, you start and look, look at these films and starting thinking about how, the, how human to um, environment relations are depicted and how that changes and the kind of um, the ways in which in Indigenous representation is changing, but the way in which their relationship to land has always been there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I completely agree. And, and film can be such a, a powerful way of in, engaging people in, in those stories and, and those histories and those, you know, really important realities about caring for country and, and how best, you know, to manage country, particularly in the context of, of the climate crisis and the many issues that we see before us, um, you know, at the moment. Um, one thing that stood out to me in in making particularly the Storm Boy episode, we at one point discussed the, the more recent remake of the film, even though we focus on the, the 1976 version, which of course, you know, all based on Colin Teeley's novel, um, is that it's actually in the, the earlier film that there's a much more complex engagement with uh, both kind of the, the, the different um, interests and priorities in the way that we manage land where there's, you know, for those familiar with the story, Fingerbone Bill, who's, who's camping um, in and around the Coorong. And at one point they say that, you know, nobody's supposed to be camping here, but to him it's perfectly normal and natural to be camping, you know, in harmony with the environment. But there's also hunters and then the, the more recent sort of addition of, of limitations on movements, um, you know, given it's sort of a, a national park and a pristine landscape. So I think dealing with that kind of complexity is something that film can do really well. And interestingly, it seems like the earlier film sort of did that in a much more nuanced fashion than perhaps the more the more recent film has. So I just think film is such a powerful way of engaging all of us um, in some of those those really important issues. Absolutely, it sounds to me like a podcast that lots of um, emerging and current filmmakers could probably listen to to consider how they approach the environment in their film and things like access to country and yeah, some of these issues. Uh, thank you both so much for joining me today on the show. Um, if you've just tuned in, I've been chatting to Professor Therese Davis and Dylan Bird about Seeing Green, which is a new podcast that explores how Australian cinema has shaped our relationship to land, water and country. Um, it's a collaboration between Swinburne University of Technology and Monash University. And I think, Dylan, you said it is dropping in your podcast feeds today. Yes, it is available now, so um, you should be able to, to get listening. Awesome. Well, everyone enjoy listening to that one. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 R. So from March 3rd to the 24th, the State Library of Victoria is going to be hosting a teen writing boot camp. And this series in particular is going to be on the own voices style with writer, performer and activist Navo Zizin, who I have on the line with me now. Hi, can you hear me? Hi, yes, I can. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, Thanks for having me. I'll just give a little bit of background for listeners who might not know. On top of running workshops in schools and doing various professional development trainings in workplaces around transgender identities, you are an author of an award-winning book called Finding Nouveau and as well as The Pronoun Lowdown, um, which is a useful guide to all things related to pronouns. So for listeners out there, you've got quite the guest on. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, and, but today we're obviously here to talk about this teen writing boot camp that kicks off tomorrow, um, which I think is really exciting. I've been thinking a lot about young people during these last two years. It's been a pretty tumultuous time and a lot of pivotal experiences that um, teens would have been having would have been overshadowed by the pandemic. So I'm really curious for you, and I just wanted to start by asking you what you're most excited about with these workshops at this particular point in time. Yeah, thanks so much. Um, I agree. I've been thinking about and working with young people a lot through this time, and I think online workshops have been such a beacon of light for so many, and especially for queer young people and trans young people who have been really disconnected from their communities in these times. Uh, So this is the second year that I'm running these workshops at the State Library, and they're so cool. Like, they're free. Teenagers can come in. They don't have to go to all the workshops. Like, you really don't need to commit to the the full thing. But I found that a lot of the kids uh, might even come back this year, but they were pretty, yeah, pretty committed. And what I was surprised about as well is that while it was definitely a group for people who loved writing, it was also a space that a lot of LGBTIQA plus young people were coming to for support and to just be around their peers. And I think that was the most exciting thing is just all of the really queer jokes that were going around or like different stages of people's transitions that they wanted to share with other people. And it's certainly not a space just for queer youth, but I was surprised by how many came just because I was the one running the workshop. (laughs) Absolutely. I think that's I mean, to me, that doesn't sound too surprising because I think there is something to be said for if you create a safe space, people will feel comfortable to come. So it's really mm-hmm. encouraging to hear that. Um, this is a show that's all about stories, obviously, and so I'd love to kind of touch on how you think that stories have the power to sort of enrich life in these moments and how do you think this, the act of story writing has been helping these young people through this time? Yeah, what a great question. I mean, I think storytelling and story writing is the main way that we connect to one another, honestly. You know, it's the main way that we connect to a story that is different from our own or lived experiences that are different from our own, not to mention that we, you know, live on the stolen land of storytellers who have been telling stories for 80,000 plus years, you know, so honouring the culture of this land and the first peoples of this land, I think is really important through storytelling and, and just oral traditions, you know, and not um, creating a hierarchy of information dissemination that is just just in the written form, but is also in um, sharing those stories in different ways. And I think particularly for LGBTIQA plus young people, you know, I grew up not seeing myself represented anywhere. You know, I didn't see myself in the books that I read, in the films that I watched, in the television shows. And, you know, this is what we always talk about, but like, you simply can't be what you can't see. And so growing up without any representation meant that I felt I needed to insert myself into the narrative because it wasn't present anywhere. And and that's why, you know, I think fan fiction is such a big thing around queer youth because they are writing the stories that they don't have. Um, So I think there's something really empowering about young people finding their own voice and finding their own story in a way to insert themselves into that mainstream canon. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, well, that lends itself to my next question around what this sort of own voices style of writing is and also just sort of what types, what kind of tools, what sort of writing tools do you use to facilitate this exploration during a workshop? 
Yeah, I mean, I think own voices is incredibly important. I think that marginalised writers, particularly in this country, aren't super supported in uh, the publishing industry, you know, and what we see is so many authors from the US being kind of the main um, published authors, even within our own literary houses. And so what does it mean to reprioritise our own local writers and authors and also people who are telling their own stories? I mean, we've seen... In the last few years, a lot of cisgender authors writing transgender stories and winning awards and making a lot of money while trans authors' books aren't going off the shelves because there isn't enough support and money put behind it. And so much of, you know, successful selling is publicity, which so many of us don't really have access to or is really risky for us as well, you know. So I think um, encouraging more and more people to speak from their own experiences is a really important thing. And within the workshops, you know, one thing that I focus on a lot that I think is often missing in writing workshops is actually self-care and community care and what it means to write your own story because while it can be an incredibly cathartic and empowering experience, it can also be deeply traumatizing. And I think that, you know, I mean, I wrote my memoir, I started writing it when I was 19, and it was published when I was 21. And I had no guidelines for how to do that or how to look after myself and to be remembering all of the most painful moments of my life to then be putting on the page for publication, I didn't really understand what the ramifications of that could look like or how much it might deeply impact me. And so we do activities around writing for self-love and how to connect with yourself, how to validate your own memory and the subjectivity of memory, uh, you know, working through imposter syndrome and perfectionism and also just the myths of productivity within creative arts uh, and how to support one another as well through our writing and finding our voices. So there's a lot of different things that we're going to go through and unlock um, and also talking about writer's block and how to overcome that. Um, but mostly I think what I really want to create is just a safe space where people can share and be vulnerable and also be not very good at writing, whatever that means, because I don't think that really is a thing. But just having a space to share I think is really valuable um, and also a space that isn't surrounded by your identity. Like, it's a safe space, but you don't have to talk about being queer or trans all the time. You can also just be a writer. For sure. There's, gosh, there's so much to, um, to think about and reflect on in that. I think it makes me think about these various purposes of writing, if you will, for lack of a better word, right now with purposes. But you have, there is the act of just writing for yourself, right, which is super cathartic. It can be really challenging. It can be therapeutic. It can be, you know, just a way to get something down on paper and out of your head. But then there's also writing for the world and what do you want to tell the world and then what do you what person do you want to portray into the world so I, I think mm -hmm. it must be really valuable to have someone help nurture that experience what kind of feedback have you got from young people about sort of what it, what it means to have someone guide their process yeah well I had some young people in my in these same workshops last year who ended up joining my other writing workshops that I run so I run trans and gender diverse and LGBTIQA plus more broadly writing workshops every fortnight that are free um, through the city of Melbourne with my creative partner, Alison Evans. So we're both two non-binary published authors holding this space, and it's, it's every fortnight. So a lot of kids um, that did the state library workshops ended up coming for that, which was really beautiful because it meant consistency after those workshops were finished. 
Um, and for so many of them, you know, I had some young people who joined the workshop as cisgender straight supporters and now have changed their names and pronouns and mm. dyed their hair and, like, realised that actually they weren't attracted to the workshop because they were really strong allies, but actually because it echoed something within themselves, which I think is really beautiful. I've watched kids, you know, coming out, being able to access medical transitional um, spaces that they haven't been able to before, make friends with one another, enter writing competitions, um, win awards, be part of publications. Um, and not just that, but I've had, you know, young people say to me, like, just seeing you live your life every day and be surrounded by community and love and family and, you know, partnership and all of those things, it just shows me that I can do that too and that I can make it to adulthood, um, which I think is really beautiful because I didn't have that when I was younger. I didn't know any trans and gender diverse people. I didn't have representations of non-binary people anywhere. And so I didn't know what my future could look like and I didn't know what was available to me. And I think what young people are growing up with today is really different from that, even though I'm only 26, <laughs> I still think um, it's really quite um, stark, those differences, and, and I'm excited to be a part of that. Mm, absolutely. It made me... Oh, I think I just got shivers just then thinking about young people coming to these spaces and ending up having going on their own journey of sort of gender exploration and finding themselves because when I was growing up which wasn't that long ago either these spaces didn't really exist in the mainstream and now it's being held by one of the sort of bigger libraries in Victoria and the country and for and many people can access them it's incredible yeah, totally. Um, and it also makes me think, and I'm curious in your opinion on this, because I feel like mainstream media at the moment is um, portraying the Zoomer generation or whatever, <laughs> whatever the next generation is called, as being a lot more like comfortable with gender expression and sort of with the fluidity of it. Um, is that has that been your experience that there is just more of a comfortability around these issues or these? Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely think, I think each generation presents a lot of new gifts and insights into ways of being than those before them. And I think that, you know, younger people are really switched on about a lot of different intersectional politics in a way that I don't think my generation was when we were growing up or any generations above us, really. But obviously, this depends on so many different factors. Um, but I think that what young people are, are dealing with is this transition from, especially trans and gender diverse young people, uh, from invisibility to hypervisibility. And I think that that presents a lot of unique challenges. So, you know, me growing up, yeah, I didn't know that there were trans and gender diverse people in existence. I didn't know about non-binary people. I certainly didn't know of my own cultural practices around gender transcendence um, within Jewish Ashkenazi culture and, and Jewish culture more broadly. But I also didn't know the percentage of the country that voted against my basic rights. I also wasn't being debated in major newspapers about whether I was indoctrinating young people or whether I was, you know, um, trying to push a trans agenda or all these sorts of things. So I think it's it's there's this real generational kind of 
um, tug of war almost mm. <laughs> of progression versus kind of overcompensation and trying to shut down these conversations. And I think it will be really interesting to see how that plays out. But I wouldn't underestimate the impact that those conversations in the media have on young people. And I mean, we know even in the marriage equality debate, there was a 40% increase in access to mental health services by young people. So I think that Although in some ways it's very different to what I grew up with, I do think that there are a whole host of unique challenges that we need to address and recognise um, when we are looking at different generations. And I see this tension sometimes in you know older queer activists where they're like, you have no idea what I went through and I went through something much harder. And it's sort of like, well, firstly, why are you trying to change the world and make it better if you're then going to be resentful that you know future generations aren't experiencing the same harm. Um, but also that harm just looks different and there are different versions of it and we need to learn um, how to actually see it uh, and how to combat it. For sure. That yeah, just really reinforces to me the importance of having safe spaces to support people through their process of sharing their stories. But you know, and having these shared experiences coming up against that tug of war and also just the, you know, the care that needs to be put into these conversations, um, which definitely isn't always there in mainstream media. Um, This is, I was hoping this would be a bit of a fun question and um, I hope that it is. I was wondering, you know, obviously the point of writing isn't to always to publish but if we did live in a world where trans kids and queer kids were the people publishing their own stories and they were there were a lot of them in abundance how do you think the world would be better off oh i think there would be some really sick sci-fi out there <laughs> i think there would be like a lot more um both dystopian but also utopian futurism imaginings um Uh, There'd be some really great fan fiction that's been made into many books, I think. I mean, some of the writing that my young people come up with in workshops, I'm like, wow, you do not need me. (laughs) I'm glad that I could create this space for you, but, like, you are worlds apart from where my writing standard is. I'm like, oh, my God, I don't want to share anything in these groups sometimes. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I think there would just be, like, just more interesting stories, honestly, because I think that's the problem with, like, having this monolith of a literary canon that is informed by upper-middle-class, white, cisgender, heterosexual men is that it's fundamentally boring. I don't want to read stories about the same protagonists over and over again and try to imagine myself within it. And I think that if that's all you can ever really write through a really binary lens and, you know, the most privileged kind of version of existence, then where is the nuance and where is the excitement of that and where is the imagination? Like, it Mm. boggles my mind to read sci-fi that imagines a future where there is still binary genders. I mean, come on. (laughs) Surely you can have more imagination than that. And, And it isn't even really an imagining, it's a remembering. You know, because these genders have existed for all of time and memorial. It's not a new construct. So I think it's a returning in a lot of ways. And I think that's what we would see in literary canons if we were mm. um, promoting and empowering different voices. It sounds like a more creative and imaginative and supportive world. <laughs> I like to believe so. <laughs> <laughs> I do too. Um, all right, I'll just end on one little fun question as well. Um, it's not necessarily related to the workshop, but it's something I'm interested in. What are you reading right now? 
Oh, good question. I'm reading uh, Pleasure Activism by Adrian Marie Brown. It's been on my reading list for a really long time, um, but I've finally gotten there. And she, I mean, she's an incredible thinker and writer and activist and does all sorts of amazing things. I really recommend listening to some of her interviews on podcasts. Um, and it just talks a lot about what it means to, acti- to actively seek pleasure, and especially as a marginalized person, and um, what can activism look like when it comes from a place of abundance and joy rather than um, scarcity and, um, and lack. Love that. I love activism from abundance and joy. Um, thank you so much for joining me on The Glass House today, Navo. It's been a pleasure to have you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So it's hosted by the State Library of Victoria and it's a teen writing boot camp online from the 3rd to the 24th of March and it will focus on own voices style of writing. Um, if you know a young person or you are a young person who wants to come along, do you just show up? Is that how it works? <laughs> yeah, so you just sign up online. Um, it's completely free. All the sessions are online. They're only for an hour as well on a Thursday afternoon from 5 to 6. So it's going to be really chill, really fun. I'm going to just give you as many tips and tricks in a short amount of time as I possibly can. Uh, and it'll be a really nice opportunity to meet others. And you get feedback on, I think it's up to 500 words. Um, so if there's anything you're working on, you get professional feedback from an author um, on that work. And there's also a bunch of other really cool workshops that I would go to if I wasn't already running one <laughs> um, and if I wasn't above the age limit. But uh, Maxine Beniba-Clark is doing one on slam poetry. I know Emily Gale is doing one on contemporary fiction. It's going to be amazing and it's totally free. So um, I couldn't encourage it more. I think it's going to be really fun. Awesome. Well, all the best with it. I'll, um, I can't wait to hear how it goes. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yes, it is time for me to get out of here. It's been such a joy to be on The Glass House with you for the last hour. My name's Eliza Herbert. I've been filling in for Beth AQ. A huge thanks to all my guests today. Um, some riveting conversation and lots to fill me up into and fill me up and take me out into the world. This is Beth AQ. Thanks for listening to the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at Bethany AQ or the Triple R website, 